Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ashu. Today's episode is the first in a series of conversations where we discuss a variety of topics related to our practice in emergency medicine, but in shorter 15 to 30 minute segments. This is going to be in addition to the monthly episodes that you hear that are longer and based on the emergency medicine practice or pediatric emergency medicine practice articles that come out from EB Medicine every month. And there's no one better to help me kick it off today than Dr. T.R. Eckler. He and I will sit down today to talk about the recently passed Dr. Lorna Breen legislation and what it means for us here in the emergency department. When you're done listening, I'd really appreciate it if you would click the show notes and on the survey link and give me a little feedback. If you like the shorter form episodes and the additional content, we've got lots of great ideas for more to come in the future, and I'd really enjoy hearing from you. And now, on to our conversation. My name is... T.R. Eckler. I'm an emergency physician now in Tallahassee, Florida. I trained in New York City on the west side of Manhattan at a program that was Mount Sinai St. Luke's Roosevelt when I trained there. I think they've now changed it to Mount Sinai West and Mount Sinai Morningside, but still two great hospitals kind of on the the western corners of Central Park that see 200,000 patients a year. It was a a really great place to train and a great place to learn and and just see an incredible amount of different presentations and disease and pathology and people from all over the world. And then I took a job coming out of residency in basically rural critical access medicine. I worked for a company based in Denver, Colorado, that served single coverage, little rural hospitals in Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Indiana, Michigan. And I just got a chance to work in places where you're kind of the only doc there. And anything that comes in, you're, you you got to fix it. And <laughs> there is no anesthesia. There is no, you know, like you're, if, if there's a baby in the middle of the night, often it's your job to deliver that baby. And it's, it was really, it was a great job coming out of residency because I really got a chance to figure out what I knew and what I didn't know. And I got a chance to really try to figure out all the tools that I had in my toolbox and try to add as much as I could. And it challenged my sense of how I could solve problems. You did that for how long? So I did that from when I graduated residency in 2015 up until 2020. And then after I had three kids with my beautiful wife, we decided to move closer to family. So we we came down here and just interviewed Justin Tallahassee because we knew where we wanted to be. And I was lucky enough to get this job down here. And we moved in March of 2020, not wearing any masks at all on a plane because no one was wearing masks yet. And we flew three kids down to Tallahassee and then started a new job on April Fool's Day in 2020, right as COVID really started to kick off. Wow, there is so much material there. It's been a a really interesting career so far, I'll say that. Now, when you did the rural stuff, was that through a specific rural medicine program or you just decided, I'm going to work in these small hospitals? The company that I worked for, I knew the directors of that company from medical school and from residency. And it was called Inova Emergency Medical Associates. And they basically are a company that is just trying to bring well-trained, talented, emergency medicine boarded physicians to rural critical access hospitals. Because a lot of those hospitals are staffed by people that are not necessarily fully trained and residency trained in emergency medicine. And there's hospitals out there that really did want to try to do everything they could to elevate the care that they got in their emergency rooms. And that's what that company did is it basically looks for hospitals in small places that want to to try to do the best they can for their patients and want to try to figure out creative ways to do that. And it was a really great company to work for and a really great place to 
to get a chance to see a lot of different hospitals and and get exposed to a lot of things. And they were staffing in all of those different states, so you got to travel around and do the work in all those states? Correct. One company working at two or three different hospitals a month and then working 10, 12, maybe 14 shifts a month, but being able to be home a lot too. And it was a really, it was a good job before I had kids and, and whatnot. And it just was a, a great place to, to start off my career out of residency. It's so interesting. Some people suggest that maybe it is best as you come out of residency to go to a tertiary care setting where you have all the backup. And then as you are well established in your practice and your career, and you've been out for a decade or longer, maybe then it's time to move to the rural setting where you have all of these tools already in your toolbox. But your experience doing it the opposite way was good. You didn't walk away from that going, oh my goodness, I need to leave emergency medicine. I can't stand this field. I, I would say not at all. And I had I heard both of those opinions when I was looking at jobs. When I was kind of on my way out of residency, I had mentors and advisors that said, you should, you should really consider starting somewhere that's got more resources so you can gradually build your skill set even more. And then I had a couple of, I thought, people that were a little more like myself that were like, look, if you feel like you can go out there and be in those rural places, like you've got a great skill set, you've learned a lot of things here, and you will learn a lot more a lot faster when there's nobody else to help you and you need to figure it out. And I found okay. that as much as you're kind of in the middle of, of you know, you're, you're far away from, from help in a lot of places, you're actually not because... A lot of these tertiary care centers, if you call up the specialists that are there and you're like, hey, I'm out here in the middle of nowhere, there's a storm, I can't move this patient to you, like, what can I do? They'll walk you through complex reductions, they'll walk you through, you know, challenging cardiac cases, they'll, they'll kind of give you really great advice on how to stabilize a, a really sick patient. I've spent hours on the phone with cardiologists and surgeons and just people that really just were trying to do the best they could for patients probably above and beyond what was required of them for their for their call. Wow. Well, that's good. That's a very positive experience and hopefully what a lot of people have in rural medicine. Interestingly, I wonder if it also has to do some with your with your personality. Are you uh let's see, do you uh skydive or uh parachute or jump out of planes or do anything extreme in your I free went, time? I went skydiving once and it was a very aggressive decision. And I remember the plane had so much duct tape on it that oh, I remember goodness. being scared about jumping out. But I also remember feeling like this plane wasn't really super great at flying. And I felt a little worse for the pilot because I felt like his job all day was to take this plane that had a ton of duct tape on it up and down. And I felt like we were actually getting the better deal to jump out of the plane than he was to try to get it up and down like 20 times in a day. So no fear jumping out of that plane. I, I, de I definitely was afraid. I was 100% afraid. And I think I, I think I have a pretty healthy relationship with fear. Like I, I love skiing in Colorado, but I, I feel like I have a fairly good sense of, of my limits. I had a motorcycle for a while when I was young, but I, I, I think my desire to go out into the rural places was somewhat to get to see a lot of parts of America that I don't think you would otherwise usually get to see. Yeah. Um, and I made a lot of fun drives on a lot of fun places to places like New Mexico, like there's a there's a little town called Silver City I got to work in that is just near just some beautiful mountains and the flight in there was so pretty and and I just I found that place always to be so incredible every time I got to spend time there. Southern Colorado is just so beautiful. Uh just some of the the mountains and the the roads that run through there are so incredible 
And I think that that was one of the great parts of my job was driving to work and driving from work was always so much fun that I always showed up in a great mood because I got to be in a part of the country that I don't think a lot of people otherwise get to see. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. I could definitely see the draw for that. So I guess if you're listening and you're contemplating rural medicine, here's a pitch for it. Colorado is a great place to go and work in rural medicine. I would I would say America. I wouldn't say Colorado. I would tell you the, the upper peninsula of Michigan is incredibly beautiful. I would uh, tell you that the cornfields of Indiana are are honestly beautiful. And the sunrise coming through the cornfields is really cool. And the people in rural America are so appreciative of healthcare and what you bring to the table. And if you're young and fresh and motivated, or if you have a ton of experience and you just have a lot of interesting tricks up your sleeve, people really appreciate that. Like I, I learned how to hang fractures really well in rural places when I just felt like I, I didn't really have another way to get the fracture to go where I wanted to. And, you know, that, that really made a huge difference for a lot of people that, that had ugly fractures that weren't going to be able to get to an orthopedist for quite a while. So, hmm. All right. Well, I wanted to invite you on the podcast to talk about your experience, but then to touch on a couple of topics that were not actually in the pipeline for our normal Amplify podcast. So one of them was the recent signing of the Dr. Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act, which if you're listening and you don't know about it, on March 18th this year, 2022, the president signed the Healthcare Provider Protection Act, named for Dr. Lorna Breen. She was an emergency physician and chair of the emergency department at New York Presbyterian Allen Hospital until she died by suicide on April 26, 2020. And that set off a large campaign to bring to the forefront the mental health and well-being of healthcare workers in general, not just emergency physicians, and the drafting of this bill, which included a lot of provisions. The Healthcare Provider Protection Act includes grants for training health professionals, students, residents, and all variety of healthcare professionals in evidence-based strategies for reducing and preventing suicide, burnout, mental health conditions, substance abuse disorders, lots of topics there. It also is looking to fund research into best practices for reducing and preventing suicide and burnout in healthcare professionals, in training healthcare professionals in such strategies, and then promoting their mental and behavioral health and job satisfaction. And it also is going to fund some national education and awareness campaigns and lots of other things, peer support programs, employment education, all of this is included. And lastly, was a funding of a comprehensive study for healthcare professional mental health and burnout in the impact of COVID-19 on all of our fields in healthcare. So this was signed into law on March 18th and actually reminded me of the impact that COVID had. So you had the opportunity to start a new career, a new transition right at the beginning of the pandemic as we kind of took a nosedive into all things COVID-related. Now, you weren't in New York at the time, but I remember we had a podcast early on in Amplify's history in the COVID pandemic where I was speaking to a physician in Italy and talking with him about his experience and sharing with him that it felt like I was looking into a crystal ball for our future. This was mm -hmm. coming towards the U.S., but it hadn't hit here yet. 
And then it hit New York and started hitting all of the large urban areas and then finally made its way down through the rest of the nation. Early on for us, it was a very unusual situation. It was the opposite. We were preparing for disaster and lots of elective procedures got canceled and then nothing happened for a short while until it really reached our area. And then when it finally hit, things became pretty significantly terrible in all parts of the U.S. And I remember reaching out last year to emergency physicians across the country and just asking them, hey, how bad is it where you are? And trying to get a kind of combined sense from emergency physicians all around the country about how bad was boarding, how bad was patient volume, how terrible was it during COVID, what resources were low. And as they shared that information, many of them also just shared their emotional reaction to what it was like to be working at that time. People said things like, this situation is just tragic and hopeless and no one wants to listen. Or I question daily how long I can keep doing this crazy job. Or someone else said, in 16 years of practice, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. One particular physician said, I hit a wall this week. It's exhausting. I just keep thinking we have to eventually get through this and we have to take care of each other and the rest of the staff around us who are having the same trials. And someone else said, this is not sustainable for our healthcare workforce. I don't see an end to this broken system. It's so disheartening. And the C-suite has no idea of our burden. So making specific reference there to the hospital chiefs and the executives and the administrators who aren't clinical, not necessarily understanding the burden of what it was like to work in the emergency department. And it reminded me really not only of just how stressful the emergency department environment is and what it's like to work in the ED, but also about how prevalent severe depression is, suicidal thoughts can be, uh, stress-related burnout can be. The emergency department is really a pressure cooker for anyone, not just physicians. And if there is continued mounting pressure over the course of your career, or in this case, sandwiched in a very short amount of time, you lose a lot of people. And it was sad to see that Dr. Lorna Breen ended her life in April of 2020, but it did give us the opportunity to discuss it in a public forum and share that this is something we don't talk about very much in medicine and something we don't share very much with our colleagues. I think in the last 17 years of practice, I have spoken probably just a handful of times with partners, nurses, physicians, and other specialties about their experience in this area. And we don't talk about it very much. It is typically a pull up your bootstraps and keep going kind of a career. And we don't really talk about the times when we don't have the capacity to do that anymore. I had uh, the opportunity during my career to serve as a medical director, and that's really when I spent most of the time trying to counsel physicians through difficult times, encouraging them to take time off and to do a little self-care so that they could salvage their career and not walk away and just leave it all behind. And I'm curious if you've encountered this amongst partners or colleagues, or if you've seen much in the way of burnout or mental illness take its toll on our colleagues, and if you think COVID may have actually accelerated some of that. I mean, I, this, has been, this has been an incredible last two years. And I think that, first of all, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for how hard all the other people in the emergency department have been working 
And I feel like everybody deserves two weeks in Hawaii at, at the least, because it's been just get through one surge, try to recover, try to have a little time with your family, try to have a little time to take care of yourself and then get ready for the next big surge. And when I started my residency in, in 2012, not too far after my residency started, Hurricane Sandy hit New York City and we lost the emergency room at NYU. So all the other emergency rooms within days, their volumes picked up by 20%. And my intern year in the emergency department and in the hospital, just all of my rotations, the volumes were, you know, almost untenable. And, and it feels very similar to that time in just the, just the heroic work that people were doing and the really long hours and the really just incredibly high stress, super high acuity patients, managing multiple ICU patients in the emergency room, just trying to find any way you could to, to keep people alive and, and get through what was going on. And... This had a similar feel, but there, that was one of those things where once the ER at NYU reopened in a year, things really did get better that second year. And this kind of had that feel of sometimes the wave would hit and it would be bad. And sometimes the wave would hit and it wouldn't be quite as bad, but every single time it's just been really challenging for a period of time. And then the challenge after that was, when is it going to come again? And will it be better or will it be worse? And it has left me humbled in a good way. And I think I feel, I feel that I was set up nicely for this by my time in rural medicine, because I think a lot of people that get into a great job, they're in one great job and they settle into the challenges of that job, but they get used to a few things being really difficult, like the lab doesn't work or the radiologists won't read these studies fast, or you can't get a bed or you have to board really long. And having worked in 10, 12 rural hospitals, there was always one or two problems at every hospital that people would shrug and say, oh, we just can't fix that. And I found it so refreshing that every different hospital, those problems changed. And I got to, I got used to just being like, well, but this isn't a problem at nine other hospitals. So why can't we fix it? Why don't we talk through the problem? And I got better and better at trying to work on things that way. And I found that it was a good way of disarming the kind of, well, that can't be fixed. There's so many great hospitals in America. There's so many great places that have figured out so many things. If you keep looking, there is a way to fix the challenges in your hospital or the issues you have with boarding or with your lab or with getting patients through your emergency room faster. And that, it continues to give me some hope that when you talk about this, with we're going to have $135 million to look into how to treat burnout and how to make this job as a physician, not just an emergency physician, but as a physician, as a nurse practitioner, as a PA, as a nurse, how do we figure out how to get back to the part where we get to enjoy taking care of patients and focusing on that and focusing less on documentation and clicking and spending time making sure that we're doing other things. I am a optimist. I'm a glass half full person. And I think this is the first step in that way that we can start researching and finding things that let us get closer to patients and get further from the stuff that makes this job hard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the last decade, the number of things that make our job more rote, more boring, more technical, have like sandwiched us to our electronic medical records. And as resources become constrained and hospital bottom lines are getting cut and our nonprofit organizations are having to live with slimmer and slimmer margins. It does seem like an ever dwindling 
amount of money to do an ever-increasing amount of work. So I am happy to see that some of this hopefully gets brought to the the light as more funding is provided to examine the reasons behind it. But I, I also don't want to detract from from the fact that there is a need for us to work on ourselves as well. You know, oftentimes it can feel like the entire hospital is resting on my shoulders. And if I don't go into my shift today, the world is going to implode and that I'm stuck in this situation or there's no way for me to change or I am stuck in a position or I can't leave or I can't change jobs or go to another hospital or what have you. And I think that that was probably quite prevalent even before COVID, but it's uh, the pressure cooker scenario there has made it all the more severe for many of us. It's interesting to see that there have been several articles recently about the people leaving healthcare and perhaps up to a quarter of all healthcare workers actually just quitting and leaving and going elsewhere. So there has been more attention placed on the fact that we are having increasing difficulty staffing. And it's not just because of COVID, but COVID has accelerated the process. And so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this funding and whether we have any actionable information. Hopefully we will, and it goes a long way in making the environment better for us. But most importantly, I hope it just makes it easier to have these conversations. So if you're listening to the podcast and you are having difficulty or struggling at work or even struggling in your personal life and your work is starting to be affected, there is a place for you to have that conversation. It's not something you just swallow and walk away from or or put up with until you implode. There There is an outlet for that. If you have a medical director or even a partner that you can confide in, there's help. Lots of people have stigmas about their license. And do I have to say on my license that I have a psychiatric diagnosis or a mental health diagnosis? And I think there's increasing pressure on state medical boards to stop asking those kinds of questions so that physicians don't have to share that information to reduce the stigma that's associated with it. You know, a, a physician with depression is just as good as a physician without depression. And there's no objective evidence that says that that physician with a mental illness diagnosis is any less of a physician or any less capable. And hopefully the, the biggest thing we get out of this is that there is access to help and that access should be freely available without the stigma that it might adversely affect your career. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest stumbling blocks for the emergency physicians I've spoken to is how is this going to look for me from my next job when I apply? or for the next state that I go to, and they ask me on the application for a state license, do you have a mental health diagnosis? So it's uh, it's an important change that needs to be made, and hopefully this brings to light some of those things that are adding to the stigma and not being helpful for us. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the inaugural episode of Conversations. I really hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to click the link in the show notes and give us your feedback with the survey. Until next time, I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Stay safe.